Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, welcome to Coffee Break. Uh, I'm Spencer Campbell, uh, aka Gila RPGs, uh, and this is Coffee Break. Every Sunday, I sit down with friends and amazing people from the indie RPG scene, and we just sit down and share a cup of coffee or tea. I think Angela has tea today. Uh, <laughs> and whatever warm or comfortable beverage we choose, uh, and we just chat. We just see what we're excited about, what we're working on, things that we've got on our mind. Um, and I've already sort of previewed my guest for uh, this week. I'm very excited to have Angela on for Coffee Break, especially since we were supposed to talk like two weeks ago. And right before <laughs> then, I was eating a waffle. I was really excited that I made waffles and I uh, chipped my tooth on the fork because I was that excited. So uh, very excited that Angela has made it. Uh, we made this happen. So... Enough of my rambling. Angela, would you mind introducing yourself to the fine folks at home? Hello there, everybody. My name is Angela Lemus Mogrovejo, or Ange, if you know me as a close friend and such, or Angela, if you're willing to do uh, go through the trouble of uh, doing pronunciation. I love your cup, by the way. Oh, thank you. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I am uh, a myriad of things in the scene and have been in a lot of different spaces for since about... 2017 actually i've been a professional writer working uh originally uh starting with uh, blog posts and online articles through uh the media the online media publication uh, art for ourselves i then got involved with rooted rooted in rights which is a storytelling organization where i did a, i was part of the inaugural disabled uh, writers cohort. And then uh, around 2018, 19-ish, somewhere around there, it's been that long already, it feels weird to say that. Uh, I got involved with streaming, starting originally with uh, D&D 5e, and then I got more involved with a lot of the indie scene. And funnily enough, one of the first games I ever played past my first bad experience with TTRPGs was I think uh, For the Queen by Alex Roberts and like a few other like lyric kind of style games. So I've kind of moved into the scene doing my own game design, originally starting with something based off of Spencer's own work. And then sort of now recently having released my own first game and in the midst of working on my second game. So I kind of wear a lot of different hats. I've been involved in community management. I'm a game designer, a poet, a writer, uh, I'm also a musician. I've written themes for campaigns, like ones that have shown up over on the All Nerds Here Twitch channel. And yeah, I'm kind of available for a lot of different things. I talk about a lot of different stuff. Like I said, I wear a lot of different hats. How do you have time? <laughs> I both don't and I do. It's it's the weird cycle of creatives where you're... where. When you don't have a cemented job, you're like, God, I have so many hours in the day. And then I'll talk to my partner and they'll be like, "Hun, do you, how much stuff are you doing in the week? Oh, I'm not doing anything. I have the whole mornings are always full uh, of like nothing but me, like playing dailies on FF14 and stuff. So I'm not really doing anything. And they're like, "Hun, you're writing your own game again. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. It's like you're also organizing home games. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, you're also like applying to other streamed uh, games that you're going to be on soon. Oh, yeah. You just did a thing yesterday on Saturday. Oh, yeah. It's like, but I don't do anything. Right. No, not at all. I, I don't do anything. That's the weird <laughs> thing with a lot of freelancers and, and like creatives from my particular event where it's like we have periods of either 
nothing is happening and oh god what are we going to do for money and then the period of uh i don't know what free time is right. because if i'm not actively working on something if i have a music commission i'm like in the back of my mind does this work for that no that doesn't work for that or writing a game you know that might be a cool move but i already wrote five of those should i remove that or no, it's probably... <laughs> but but this fits more the theme in the class it's like yeah but this is just cool and mm. Sometimes I just want a cool thing. And is my cool thing I'm interested in the cool thing other people want, which is the <laughs> most annoying thing to have as a creative, especially if you're making anything for combat. Yeah. Because then you're like, isn't like cover-based shooting and doing it this kind of format? In theory, yes. In practice, this needs work. Mm. And I don't like that. <laughs> Well, then, yes, it sounds like you were perpetually busy and not busy at all times with a million different things, which is very exciting. Um, I mean, of all the things that you mentioned, I want to know so much about so many things that you either work on or have worked on and things like that. Um, you know, you mentioned the idea that, you know, you, early on, you mentioned that like you kind of started in like with writing stories and things like that. I'm curious how you got into writing like just kind of like broadly writing and like poetry in particular did, did that stuff come first before game design and then like do you find that your game design is informed by that in any way uh, I, I would say yes because um uh i was very fortunate in that my mother was uh was a writer for uh, mostly casually and never really publishing too much but she was a poet especially in particular and because of that she had a tendency to look at the world in a, a very particular kind of way. Mm. And also it came out of a lot of her experience growing up originally in Bolivia, because that's where my mother is from South America. And for them, when they do education, and she was, I think, when she went back for a bit, was had some like high school or like almost like low level collegiate equivalent experience where they were doing like world literature and they were reading like stuff like philosophy from other places like like france or like russia and such and like she loved particular like writers and things but she always went back to especially uh south american uh singer songwriters who had a very particular almost uh I guess the, the best equivalent we could find here would be like simon and garfunkel style where like yes they have beautiful singing but sometimes would just have melodies that were relatively simple and more about telling the story of the lyrics and some folks some different styles of folk singers in south america would have a tendency to just like be speaking poetry while having these very beautiful uh chord progressions or melodies underneath so a lot of my original foray into writing came from a mixture of that from having that very rich musical and poetic tradition coming from particular south america and a lot of encouragement from my uh, honors English teacher and freshman year of high school. I was just someone who was just writing some poems and I mentioned it to my teacher and said, oh, why don't you show me some? And I was like, oh, okay. And then I started writing more and then it became the kind of thing that I think some creatives need at times later on where they're like, oh yeah, per like complete freedom to just write whatever you want is great. And then you start trying to write and you're like, what do I actually uh, write? This doesn't help me. So having an actual task or someone to be accountable to mm -hmm. actually oddly Im 
inspires freedom because it's a it's a limitation, but it's a limitation that I found I'm very productive in, in that uh, I always found, uh, I remember hearing from different bands that I liked growing up, like in particular Radiohead, uh, one of their songs, I think it was just, what literally came out of just a bet of the lead guitarist and the singer being like, how many chords can we fit in a song? When you give yourself <laughs> little challenges or limitations like that, it oddly makes you have to be a little bit more creative for how to do things. So a lot of my early writing came from just, I had a teacher who wanted me to share some things and I was like, oh, I don't have anything to share. Start sharing, start sharing and does the inadvertent work of, oh, you know how you get good at something silly? You just start doing it and then mm -hmm. you do bad and then suddenly at some point or another you do good or at least it's not bad anymore. Right. I don't know if it's good, <laughs> but it, at least it's not bad. That's, it's actually, that's so true. That concept of having some constraints being a, a freeing effect on the creative process. I've, I've had that even when I'm not doing quote unquote, like creative work, when I'm doing my like academic work, even then when I'm just like, oh, I should just write this paper. Like if I don't have a deadline or somebody like who's knocking on my door being like, hey, Spencer, where's that paper coming along? That paper's never getting written. It's just not gonna happen. But like the second I know that there's a deadline or somebody wants to see it in X weeks, I'm writing, it's flowing. It's just, it's magic. It's just a, a switch that ha that goes off in the head and it's, it's wonderful. I, I love it. I love a deadline. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know a lot of people don't like deadlines and I understand why, because uh, especially I think for creatives, the luxury of, of our work at times is that we are trying often to not be beholden mm. to other folks that I think is the kind of like romanticism associated with creatives but the reality oftentimes is that you know also we would like to have food and a place to live which means you need to take work and sometimes that means being beholden to someone and it doesn't always limit your creativity entirely i never think of limitations as purely constrictive limitations can at times show you what you've relied on at times like i remember for example my part i asked my partner hun you know how i write I'm stuck for writing right now. Give me, give me a, a line limit and give me something I can't do in my writing for this. Mm -hmm. And my partner was like, okay, you can't ask a question and you have 50 lines to write. I'm like, I don't, I don't write questions that much in my writing, do I? And then <laughs> I look back and I'm like, every other poem has a question. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> it was like the kindest, gentlest, supportive burn that someone could give you is when they just look at your writing and you're like, you do this a lot. I do that a lot. Fuck. This is kind of your thing, isn't it? <laughs> Damn it. That's awesome. So you, you know, you were inspired by your mom and the, the sort of the musical scene that's growing up. You, you're doing writing, you have the cool teacher. And like you said, you you one of the first campaigns you ran was with with D and D, but then you your exposure to like the indie scene was with, with lyric games like For the Queen or the or the more like narrative collaborative storytelling games. Um, the in terms of like what are some of the other collaborative storytelling games that you played? Because it's I when I talk to people about like first games, it's almost always D and D first, right? And then I want them to see the collaborative 
uh, storytelling games, the narrative games out there. And For the Queen is definitely one of the ones that I always recommend to folks. But I'm always curious, yes. like, what are other things people are, like, had to that early exposure that went, oh, I get it. I see it with the cool stuff. I... I don't think there is enough time in the world for me to shower praise upon Takuma Akata's stew pot. I love that game so much because so much of what I found in like 5e romanticism and like player tendencies to look for very like queer sort of characters to play, especially with like tieflings. That's a weird trope that I've always I've never really quite understood how that happened. I get it, but also I'm still always baffled by how that came to be a thing. Uh, not in a bad way. I'm just like, how did this get to... Okay, never mind. I'm not going to ask questions. But a lot of the romanticism is thinking about... And this feels weird for me to say this, because I'm only... I just turned 29 this past Tuesday, so I'm not old at all. But the weird thing that I've noticed thinking about like a lot of 5e campaigns is that we don't actually really talk about the end of them at the time and some of that is is really comes down to the basic uh cr30 monster scheduling because a lot of campaigns just die out after like four to six sessions right like it just doesn't happen things don't click or, or like things get in the way which is perfectly understandable i understand that the the work that some of the work that i'm involved in is hobby it's not something people treat as central to their lives and that's perfectly okay not everything needs to be centered on just this one hobby it's actually a good thing that it's not yeah. but for me the thing that stood out about stew pot especially was the sense of like i love fantasy scenarios because i always love those old like different adages and interpretations people have like i think there's a terry pratchett quote or some other one who's like Fantasy stories don't teach us about, like, necessarily how to, like, think about the heroes, uh, about, like, heroes or the fantastical details. Those are really great, and I know a lot of people love that. But it's the elements of being able to see that a villain can be vanquished or that an evil can be overcome and how that manifests through different kinds of cultural lenses that different writers bring to that that I've always loved. And... Stewpot is one of those games that from the beginning is just like you did it. Hmm. Your your story is is in a way over. And it's the two words that I think a lot of people dread, I think especially when they're younger, but I but I've seen a lot of folk who are older too asking that's a very existential question because that has been one of the foundation points for my thinking and a lot of the work that I do is hearing the two words what next because mm. <laughs> they're, they're frightening words but but especially for like fantasy folks who are like ha i have triumphed i even if you go to the, the the super stereotypical i triumphed over the dragon and i've saved someone and it's like okay you did all that what's next right stew pot is one of those games where i played it and i was like i don't think i'm ever going to stop loving this game mm. because so the story is just like you literally mechanically start giving away the components of yourself that used to be an adventurer and coming into being someone from a town. Like you're giving up right. those things and it's not because they're gone forever. They just translate into something new. And that's kind of the thing that I love thinking about because for me, I also have a lot 
in thinking about writing that comes back to like, how do we think about organizing? How do we think about the communal impact of different things? And when we imagine a world, what happens when we're not thinking of, let's say a campaign is just about these PCs, like the whole world of all A world, a world has life to it. It has culture. It has history. It has people involved in it. It has major events. It has, it has traumas. Mm. It has things that have left scars across relations. And then at the same time, because I abhor staying in that state, it also has the things that are oftentimes uncomfortable for us to talk about. It has coping mechanisms. It has healing. It has moments where you see people reunited, you see people reaching a point where they forgive certain people who hurt them, or just as valuable seeing people who don't forgive. They look back and they say, and they say something like, I can't trust you, but I can trust other people who see your actions and have said you are making amends. Mm. And that is just as valuable. We don't need to all be on the same terms to know that the world that we want to be better than this one doesn't require us to necessarily like each other. <laughs> and Stew Pot feels really nice for getting into a lot of just the really cozy, kind of boring elements I think people don't think about because some of the, the little mini games that the whole game is about, because the whole game is basically mini games, mm. are things like you meet someone in a tavern. They catch your eye. What do you do from that kind of point onwards? Like, what happens when someone who has been the gruff, like, lone wolf kind of type suddenly finds themselves catching the eye of someone else and they become a blubbering mess of, I can't talk because I don't know what... I've known blood and killing. That's been my life. And now I get to have something else. And that's just as terrifying to some people as... <laughs> facing something terrible, sometimes even more. And I think that's amazing that a game can capture those elements. So Stewpot for me is that game that will probably be my favorite for a very long time. It is one of those games that captures a lot of what I love in fantasy and in collaborative storytelling. I I have not I've not read Stewpot. So now I absolutely need to go do that. I have I've I've got a note here to myself to go check that it sounds sounds wonderful um I, i'm just uh out of my curiosity just before i go looking is is stewpot a gmless game then is it a sort of collaborative storytelling thing with the yes it, it, it is gmless and it is very much just folks choosing who's going to be involved in certain scenes some mini games are only for two people some folks are only involved uh for like maybe three people and some are the entire party. And it can be like silly little things because the whole premise of the game Stew Pot is that you are adventurers who retire and decide to set up a tavern. Mm. And you all take on new roles in the town. So for example, you you have the usual 5e kind of array of like classes. And then you have things like apothecary, mm. farmer, town guard, the clergy, like you have those roles. And then you, the, the great thing about it from what I found is that you don't necessarily 
You have to pick the one that you think would go into that. Like a druid might might naturally flow into apothecary, but a druid could also end up the town guard or someone who was like a priest or a cleric equivalent. I had them be like, I think a community person who, because they were, they used to deal with like clearing out graves, helped be join the clergy mm. of the town and was like, Oh yeah, I I folks who have uh, loved ones who passed away whose spirits are restless, she just goes and helps puts them to rest. Instead of trying to actively kill them, she's like, "Okay, I I know you're upset about the the right. the 300 gold that you didn't get, but you're dead and there's nothing you can do about that." Right. And they didn't kill you, so please stop being angry at them. <laughs> this was a natural cause. I'm I'm sorry that I'm sorry, but you're gonna you're gonna have to move on and be at peace at some point. It's time to go, bud. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm I definitely need to check that out. I think that'll be. I'm always looking for for those sorts of games, just in, because I I regularly teach a um, a psychology of role playing games class, and a big part of that class is that many of those students have never seen or played a role playing game before, um, and. Certainly, I'm not going to try and teach them something like 5e for this class, but instead finding these really um, fun, easy to grasp, interesting, um, evocative storytelling games. And so For the Queen is always, I always run For the Queen with my students because it's just, it's fantastic. So I'm adding Stew Pot to my list of games to check out for for that class. Um, so I'm when I first got... Uh, introduced to you or when I first uh, started seeing the stuff that you were doing it was when you were running a campaign of slayers which was uh totally a surprise to me <laughs> that there was a slayers and there was slayer stuff uh being done out there so I'm I'm curious how did you how did you get into into slayers where did that where did that come from <laughs> Uh, it honestly was from a from a fellow designer uh, Simon Moody, who does work over at Color Spray Games. Who was just like, "Oh yeah, I've been hearing about this game. This looks like really cool." Because we were considering uh, a few different games for what we were going to run for our next season, and Slayers was a little bit more in the combat kind of range. So we decided not to go for it. We ended up going for For the Dungeon because we wanted to do a little bit more lighthearted. And Slayers is not quite the the, yeah. the tone we wanted to shoot for but slayers filled that niche that i have for combat mm. uh, games because as much as i actually am much more aligned with like pacifist or like anti uh, like more anti-violence kind of work in relation to a lot of different subjects i i have very not liberal leanings and definitively not conservative leanings and because of that uh, I, I look to think about like how folks treat violence or how how they are intentional with violence. And for me, Slayers, by both the name and mechanically, it was not trying to front to be something else. It was it was not, and that was that often is the thing that I really that can really get me to sink in thematically with the game is if it has a cool premise and if it's willing to be just upfront about what it's doing then I don't feel like I'm being lied to. Mm. Often in what I think uh, Simon is referred to as the kind of now oral tradition of playing 5e, folks will do the the tried and true method of being like, oh, 5e can be done for, can be used for everything. And 
my response to that used to be like, oh, I kind of agree, even though I think it has colonialist undertones to its mechanics and what's happened. And I acknowledge that in the past few years, folks have introduced more mechanics and built it out to be something different. But for me, the tendency to want to do some, to have a game system encompass everything is foolhardy because it reminds me of a, a quote of all things, an academic piece. I think it's the intro to one of Judith Butler's works, which if you have no idea who Judith Butler is, as someone watching this or as yourself, who that is, she is a very famous uh, feminist academic who in one of her pieces, she says, any attempt for a piece of, for an, for an academic work to attempt to capture the whole of an epistemic terrain will inevitably run into a problem of occluding the fact of what it's getting rid of or what it's not being honest about. And to me, that has always guided how I think about game design and my writing is to be upfront about what I want it to do. Because a lot of the times when people try and make those like, this works for everyone, the immediate question I want to go is who counts as someone when you're saying everyone? <laughs> I'm like, you mean the folks who've always been involved in fantasy or, or gotten the credit in fantasy as opposed to the people who've been in fantasy? Are you talking about the folks who get to imagine a power fantasy that isn't in actuality that different from their everyday lives as much as they want to say it is? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like... I don't like intellectual dishonesty. It annoys me the most of maybe anything in writing. And Slayers was kind of one of those things where I looked at it and I was like, this wants to be about combat. This has skills to be just flexible enough to do more RP related stuff, but it's trying to be clear about this. And for Janice, I had a player who was fantastic and came in with like, I want us to try and approach talking about violence in a game that is explicitly using violence as a mechanic. And I was like, okay, let, let's get into that. My initial thought was to be like, this is not going to happen. This is going to be a 5e scenario. But I felt like we addressed it in a really nuanced kind of way because we went in ahead of time deciding that like the players knew the creatures in that world were at one point human. Mm but the characters did not know. So we wanted that for the audience to be a big reveal. And that whole conversation in like our third episode of the four in the series, where we had players like with someone who had been corrupted and being like, oh, we should just kill her. I'm like, no, we shouldn't. That's not actually our job. As Slayers, we kill monsters. I'm like, but monsters are just, are, are at this point human. So there's no real point in hedging bets. Like having some those tensions, mm. I live for that stuff, not because I'm like wanting to be a contrarian or a centrist. That feels weird to even say. <laughs> but I want us to like talk honestly about what it means to engage with that stuff. And Slayers gave us a nice one where it was oddly enough emphatically about violence. Mm. Like there's a there's a whole cool factor and gimmicks to how a lot of the playbooks are even done. But it gave us a mechanism to be like, we're not trying to front that we're not talking about violence here. Right. We're not trying to be like, we're explorers or adventurers, or we're just trying to create a queer found family and looting a whole bunch of people, killing a whole bunch of sentient beings. And that's a whole bunch of other stuff that we're not going to get into because we have a 
themes. And that's nothing against the folks who find beautiful, painful, but riveting kind of themes or works within the mechanics. I know Transplaner as a channel, for example, has emphatically built a whole anti-colonialist world. I have my own thoughts about whether that can be done with something like 5e, but to my knowledge and to their credit, they have worked to explicitly try and grapple with the history that is associated with that system. So I don't think it can't be done. I think it's just you need people being very intentional when you're going to deal with your games like that. And that's kind of what Slayers became for me. It was it was a system where I was like, am I encouraging violence and all these other things? I was like, yes, I'm, but I'm being very intentional about this. I'm being very clear. I don't try and front like the, what these aren't about. But when I wrote lore for my own playbooks, I made it clear, like, all of these playbooks come from people who story-wise have reasons for why they're involved. These are all different reasons why people go into using violence and also why people get involved in a very nasty profession like being a bounty hunter. Mm -hmm. Like no no romanticism necessarily about it, or if there is, it's because that that's what some people see in that work. Mm -hmm. And but it's not it's romantic, but it's not beautiful. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. It's often very ugly for what happens to imagine a world where monsters roam around and interrogating who counts as a monster. I'm I'm so curious how the the concept, like the lore of of your world that you had created of of Janus, uh, came about because that was you know that was the premise uh, in which you ran your your arc, and then it's also the premise of the district that you have written for the Slayer's Almanac, and so. Um, you know, it is, it's it's a district about centered around this kind of cycle of, of rebirth and these these concepts. And I'm curious, um, where where did that was that something that you had been sort of working on in other things, and you were sort of trying to bring it into this? Was this something that you kind of put together whole cloth for this particular arc that you ran? Where where did Janice come from? So, for me, uh, a lot of my uh, if there is a kind of like being or creature that's like my brand or my go-to like this hey do you need a logo thing for me just stick a picture of this there for me it's a phoenix mm -hmm. and a lot of what i especially loved was from my understanding jewish interpretations of uh, the phoenix because it's a very tragic and hopeful figure at the same time that i it's in a way that i've often seen a lot of jewish friends and like other academics talk about what it is to be someone living through literal genocides and deaths is that notion that we live at the intersection of constant death but constant life and flourishing mm. and that to me that that is a theme of what it means to come from a culture that has a history that grapples with the complexities of colonialism. Because for me, I don't ever want that theme of colonialism to be gone entirely from my writing because I feel like there's a tendency, and especially a lot of Western writing to avoid, and a lot of Western designers when they're working in fantasy, especially white designers, to not, to not be honest about the influence of that and on things like, you know, Cowboys, the West, that has a very racialized history and how it's been interpreted. But... For me, the Phoenix has always stood up because to me it's a very hopeful figure, but it's not a it's not a naively hopeful 
theme or figure because the phoenix has to live all of its life knowing it's going to die and that it has the possibility to come back and that's a grim way to live your life but it's one that feels very bittersweet bitter and that there will be pain mm. there is no avoiding that pain of to be part of life is to know suffering not because everyone should suffer it's just there will be loss there will be pain especially for folks who have lived very marginalized existence but there is also hope and so that's kind of been the bedrock of how i think about a lot of my worlds mm. is uh so I've built one world that was a homebrew world for 5e originally that I am re revamping a bit that was built around the idea of a creation story where there was a phoenix that when it split itself apart, it created all the gods and it basically turned into the world itself that people navigate through. Was It, it came about from essentially a parental battle of the phoenix arguing with its kids and being like you guys think you could do you can do creation and life management better than i can fine i'm gonna go over to my own realm you do the prime material realm and whatever you want i'm going over here in the astro sea i don't care anymore about any of y'all or i care but you all you're all grounded you all have to manage life now you get to create your own beings and so th that was like my first world. And then I had other worlds that I created, but I always like coming back to the Phoenix and Yanis kind of came about is like that, that element in the baseline lore you have for the Slayers book of a city that's constantly expanding or that's like, there's no end in sight. And I was like, thematically that parallel is very easy to make for what it means to think about a cycle of life and death. And for me, I always like thinking about circles and cycles because of how often in times things like grief, memory, and impactful moments in our life keep coming back to us in ways we don't expect. They're never exactly the same, so maybe a circle is not perfect, but spiral or cycle is kind of more accurate. But that idea of like we have these anchor points that come back to us mm. or that we come back to at times that we don't even realize and we sometimes end up walking the paths of let's say our parents who we when we adamantly are like i'm not going to be like my dad or i'm not going to be like my mom 10 years later i'm a poet and i am have dealt with housing instability the same way my dad did when he moved to this country because he he's an immigrant from mexico mm. so it's that funny thing about how there is this constant cycle of what it means to keep coming back to certain points. And that kind of has anchored how I do my world building in general. But for Yanis in particular, it came uh, out of just trying to figure out how to, how to give people a toolbox to play in world building wise. Because all the different districts we saw for that series those came from my players i i just told them you know what we have four episodes and i like decentralizing power as much as i can even in a specifically gm game like if we have the agreement that i'm going to be the gm i'll make final calls great but if i can remove as much as possible the association of gm as god because i need to that that tendency that sense of like the gm lords over people with that weird like 
wargamey tradition tendency of like rocks fall, everyone's die. Like I've almost never met a GM who actively like looks forward to that moment when players die. I've I've teased and like tormented my players in a two and a half campaign I ran from level one to twenty. Wow. I did one of those. Never again. Never <laughs> again. Never again. But there is there's just so much to handle on a one to twenty campaign. I'm just gonna state that for the record. Yeah, <laughs> there's, I can't even, there's too can't much. Even comprehend my brain can't. My my brain breaks at the thought of doing that. Spencer, I ran it for six people. Oh my, six people? Yes. <laughs> How? You, How? <laughs> a lot of homebrewing. Yeah. I literally, at some points, was just looking for creature ideas. I watched Pan's <laughs> Labyrinth. I'm like, you know, the Pale Man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making the Pale Man a creature. That's why half of my creature designs for Slayers are much easier for me to do because I'm just like, I'm going to go watch a movie. Mm. I'm going to go watch, go play a video game. Oh, that's a terrifying creature. Or watch Devil May Cry combo reaction, a uh, combo <laughs> compilation. Like, Cerberus with three elements is a really cool idea. How do I stab this? I'm going to go put that over there. Here, here's King Cerberus in a layer of hell. This fits thematically, right? Yeah. That, that's a bullshit enough reason for me to include it, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic i mean you have made you have made so much stuff i mean for for slayers alone you made i think what 17 playbooks alone inspired 20 actually 20? i made 20 oh my god 20 playbooks um uh and this is something that uh i have learned that we have our we have our love of being inspired by video games and things like we consume for you uh final fantasy being a big touchstone for those uh the classes that you had made for slayers i mean i will link them in in all of this stuff because folks need to see all of i can't believe the output of just like and here's another one and here's another one and here's another one incredible amazing yeah exactly you get a playbook you get a playbook you get a playbook and and so like, what if what if we don't like our character it doesn't matter here's another playbook if you don't like that right, one. exactly there's always another one and so you you mentioned that you know you've now you've released um a game you're working on a second one so you've you've started to you know begun this ttrpg design process can you tell us a little bit about the 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 first thing that you made and then uh well, and then we'll talk about your the thing you're the thing you're working on. So, in terms of first thing that I ever wrote, a lot of them were just like homebrew things for like five E that have never seen the light of day. That were there were things like because my partner came comes from story games. My partner uh, Moss Bosch, who wrote a game that was lucky enough to get featured in Dice Breakers, like top ten like queer games of this party sucks which I also would recommend as a really great uh, like introduction to GM-less kind of like games because it's the premise is you play a 20-something-year-old who, queer, I think trans 20-something-year-old, who goes to a party after having broken up with a partner and has to deal with the awkwardness of being at a party and all that stuff that comes with like when you're at a shitty, you're in a social situation where like, I don't want to be around people. This is yeah. so uncomfortable. and has a mechanic that they decided early on that was no matter what happens, the character you all share control over will be better in a better state at the end of the game 
than when they started. That is their game. I highly recommend that to add to the list of stuff you're working on. But the first ever stuff I came just came out of them running a 5e game that was homebrew for us. And I was like, what if I do this? And I'm like, oh, good. I'm going to learn what multi-classing is. And oh, wait, they don't actually have a class for this. Hey, hon, can I create my own stuff for this? And they're like, sure, if you want to do the work. And I'm like, great. Runs off and starts mm-hmm. making my own stuff. And that's kind of the freedom that I've enjoyed with a lot of this work. So a lot of things were just 5e kind of stuff. And a lot of it was me just wanting to look at what isn't being done in the space and be like, why are people using this more? Like, why are people dump on intelligence? Why do all of you never choose intelligence? I know it's a dump stat for most of you, but it's useful. For fuck's sake, some of you use this. So I started doing that. But really the first like formal published thing was my Worm Guardian playbook. If we're talking about the process of that, a lot of it was just like, okay, how do these playbooks actually work? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I'm very much someone who often goes by feel. Okay. And also, but I like a lot of structure. Like I'm the kind of person who, this will tell you a lot about my personality. When I used to write articles, I would pull quotes from different sources until I felt like I had enough material as a library of things to work with. Oh. To which frequently my partner would be like, "Hun, you pulled more quotes than the actual amount of pages you need to write. That's irrelevant. I'm going to need one of them at some point. If if you give me, like, if I have 15 options, I'm sure I'm only going to use four that are reliable. But I wanted to know how to organize my thoughts by reading those other 11. And so a lot of what uh, that turned into for Slayers was, okay, I'm going to look at these four playbooks, the four baseline ones from the from the game, and just pick out what are just basic mechanics. What are things like at their most fundamental? And I have a doc that's literally general mechanics abilities. And I was like, okay, what are these classes doing with damage? What are these things doing with speed? What are creatures doing with bleeds? What are creatures doing with additional attacks or advantage and disadvantage? What are they doing with movement? And how do I, and then I took inspiration from the game and was like, okay, what are iconic things about this that get the gimmick? Because to I, I go, I keep going back to that word, but to me that, it, I, I made a tweet about this the other day, but oftentimes people use the word gimmick. I think when they're like, kind of, it's like, oh, it's trashy or it's like, you only know how to do one thing. But like for a system like Slayers, that's its, one of its strongest points yeah. is that, vibe feel is built around a gimmick you want it because gimmick is another way of saying specialty in some ways and so for the first thing i ever made with the worm guardian i was like jump it's the it's the dragon jump ability which is just a fancy way of saying how do i solve every problem it's leg day i'm going to leap into the air with a spear and jump pointed down and somehow not die Mm -hmm. and that's how i will do things and so I was just like, okay, they prep a buff. Okay, if they are prepping a buff, what is the buff? Okay, this playbook is going to be built around maybe give players agency to choose which kinds of buffs they do to their attacks. So, okay, that's that. But I want them to have the dragon feel. Okay, there's this whole mechanic from the games is dragon eyes because when you get to a certain level in the game, you use an ability 
and then you use a follow-up ability unlocked from that to gain a dragon eye. Once you use two and you use an ability again, you unlock a mode where you get stronger attacks. Mm. What if the dragon eyes were just a thing you could choose to activate an additional buff? Okay, let's go with that. But I also know that the way they talked about lore-wise for spears was you often have to be kind of precise and you get more range, but there can sometimes be difficulty with the precision and, and capability you need to wield those kind of weapons. So, okay, let's give them a built-in ability to choose disadvantage. But if they're willing to take that risk, they get something out of that. And then I broke down, okay, what are what's the difference between a basic advanced level versus what's a like expert advanced level? Basic advanced, it tweaks a minor mechanic. Expert advanced, game changer element. So now so that became a kind of foundation point for how I started to build all the other playbooks. Cause then it became what is it about this class that's iconic either in the history of the game or in this particular uh, manifestation of the class itself. And so I started just figuring out how to translate those different things or think about even just dan- ways raid attacks are done in the game or debuffs happen and then make that into a mechanic. Like one of the debuffs you get in the game is called Pyretic, which says if you move or take any action, you get hurt and it hurts a lot. It's like a really bad bleed. So I was like, oh, why don't the class that literally summons a fire being, that's their effect. Mm. If they hit someone and that creature moves, it's going to take a big burn. That be, that's sort of the, what the whole process of the playbooks became, is just building from the foundation of, okay, how do these tiny little pieces start working together in a way that feels satisfying? Right. And then when I play tested them, it was like, Okay, this takes too fucking long. Let's reduce this significantly. Or doing a bunch of other stuff. I was like, this works, but this gets absurd. Like, I had one for the brawler that was like, oh, they start with one damage, but every time they move or increase their speed, which they can do every turn, uh, they get one more damage. (laughs) I realized that they could get to doing eight damage each turn, and uh, that's not... Nope. That's uh, that, that's a little too much. It's a little too much. It's a little too much. So, but a lot of a lot of the design and starting point for those first ones was just how does this game work at its most fundamental level? What does it want mechanically for the different classes to do? Right. And then how do I do my interpretation of them? That's what a lot of the first ones were. A lot of my own game was okay. How do I take this very specific (laughs) emotional thing that I am trying to talk about and mechanize this? Mm. And Flame in the Abyss was kind of that, because Flame in the Abyss was not a combat game. It was not a player role initiative and kind of game. It was, uh, in a way, a love letter to my mother, because she passed away a few years ago. And so it was me taking uh, watching a youtube video of someone playing ff14 one of the storylines and i was like this deals a lot with grief in a really beautiful way Hmm. i'm gonna go i'm gonna write something real quick (laughs) and then start getting ideas start writing it down and then it just sort of flourished into something much more than i expected and it turned into a game that was also dealing with 
how awkward grief can be because I made one of the things uh, with the game very clearly be you play three roles that are three perspectives of one character. You're trapped in a place where memories are kind of fragmented and emotions have come alive. And one of the key things I emphasize to anyone playing the game in the text is you all, in a way, have different interpretations of the same events at times. But this is important. No one remembers what actually happens. And critically, it doesn't matter. It is only you, you after a certain point, the, one of the specific roles does not have to actually be telling the truth when they interpret the events that you're looking at. That's not, that's not what's important in grief, or at least that's what I tried to say with the game, is that in grief, it's oftentimes the things that we took that were most important from memory to let us move on. Because I know that I was a psych student. I have a psych, ma- I'm a psych major, if you can't tell by the way that I talk about everything. <laughs> and that element of like memory is often, it's, it's not a, it's not a video camera. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's it's really not. It's awkward to tell people that because it's like it's like if you had a camera that has a focus like this, and it's only you for what you think is relevant. Like that's one of the simplest ways to talk about how memory actually works. And for grief, it's even weirder because you'll be like, Oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna listen to some songs. Okay, I'm gonna get some writing done today. Oh, look, an Aerosmith song came on. Why am I crying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you, feelings. Why are you like this? <laughs> I I love talking about memory stuff all the time because yeah, as a psychologist, just studying memory and talking about it is always fascinating. So like talking with you about it, talking with like Adam Vass, who a lot of his work involves the sort of interpretation the personal reflection of memory it's it's great i i'm i'm happy to see more people talking about memory like that of the it's not a perfect video capture of the moment you don't have a perfect library filled with all of the moments uh stored away um so that sounds that sounds um that sounds really that sounds really special so you you said you were working on something right now what are you what are you brewing up right now? So uh, it's another it's a it's another from one of your engines. It's a Lumen inspired game. Oh, all right. I mentioned ages ago. Uh, I'm tentatively calling the project Dreamweavers, and my my idea is this: is that a lot of how I I am looking at uh, the document that you shared. Uh, I think on itch about like, do you want to make a Lumen game here? Mm-hmm. throw this throw throws at people do what you want which is <laughs> you have the most carefree attitude with your engines you're just like oh you're making cool shit sweet wait do you need more stuff to make cool shit <laughs> but so i i was looking at i was looking at the lumen games because i was uh, i haven't actually read the, the original text themselves i was just looking at the engine because i was like oh it's just simple enough to tinker around some ideas with. Gets inspired. Uh-huh. And uh, 
I had this idea because I've had this I've had this concept that I think would probably work better as like a play or some other format, but I had this idea this idea for years about what happens to a person where it's just this image of an individual wielding a sword very akin to like Virgil from Devil May Cry where it can cut through dimensions, but this one cuts in through into the dream realm. But it's a weapon that's a curse that is slowly corrupting uh, this individual. And I started to imagine like what kind what kind of game would involve that kind of character. So I came up with this idea of a dream reavers, which is the dream space is such a trippy as hell thing to imagine because sleep, when you try and talk about it, is like from what I remember reading academically about sleep, we're just kind of like it's it's weird. It's very weird. It's weird. <laughs> we're like you're at rest, but your brain is super active, which you're like, I that makes sense, but also come again. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that. But for me, I love the idea of dreamscapes because physics breaking is fantastic, but also involves like, what does that even mean to like break the laws of reality when you're in a space? What does that entail? Mm. So I had this idea of players become what are called lucids. They are, these are manifestations of their avatar selves in the dream world. And they try and deal with the conflicts that are happening in that space that are beginning to pour out from the dream world into uh, the real world. And so I've actually, uh, I've started the playbook creation, which has already been a time. I've, I've put like 12 hours into this thing, just coming up with abilities. Cause I was like, yay, I have my main themes of abilities. Great. Wait, these all need to go to specific playbooks. Fuck. <laughs> and then I was like, wait. These some of the, uh, I I I did an inventory of all my abilities. I think I went to a superpower wiki site oh, and I just started pulling through different cool powers and stuff. I put it in a doc and I was like, okay, I have like 60 powers or I have like 50 powers here. Okay. Let me start slotting it for each of the seven playbook ideas I have. I went through it. I was like, this one has seven. This one has four. This one has nine. This one has 11. (laughs) Shit. This is, this is a problem, but I have my main playbook ideas. I have the main attributes for anyone who's not familiar with the Lumen system. It's you have the, like the aggressive or like force attribute. You have the dexterity attribute. And then you have the like thinking about it attribute, which I, for my game, I decided to take the title, uh, treat those as dynamis, the ability to bring things into creation, death, the ability to nullify or end things like barriers or contact with memories and communication, and dimension, the ability to affect space time. Oh, and I have those are so good. Those are such good attributes for this. <laughs> I'm so excited because here, here are my seven playbooks. I'm so excited to just share these because I'm still working on everything. But here's my ideas. Bulwark, basically the the typical like uh, video game style tanks, but like the usual big ones where they're like, I will be the wall, I will be the front line of things. So like Reinhardt Arisa from Overwatch and Terminus and Makoa from Paladins. Evokers, they bring the natural elements to life. So May from Overwatch, Storm 
black mages from ff14 a lot of the like elemental kind of users mm. psychopomp folks who can communicate beyond the realms of the living so folks who specialize in precognition necromancy telepathy divination plane shifter folks who can break the laws of physics so they can, that includes gravity planar movement rewinding time and flight so a lot of so the usual gravity manipulator kind of types uh technomancer they use technological gadgets to alter the dreamscapes so forge from x-men moon girl iron man from marvel comics twilight dancer folks who shift the boundaries of light and shadow so think like a cooler version of being an illusionist because <laughs> because i say it's cooler than being an illusionist but it is basically just being an illusionist who they they can do things like what what is my ability thing that i have here i've written three ability revision docs for this fucking thing already <laughs> uh that's right. <laughs> partially right oh yeah uh i have an ability called scattered light where the person can split themselves between spots where beams of light are hitting and attack all near and close enemies and deal three harm to close and two harm to near. That's so, so they just... fucking cool. <laughs> and uh, then I have, what is it? My last one, which is basically, I'm like, I got to give some love to Miss Marvel. Mm. So they're called body artists. Folks who can change their bodies to any shape and form they wish. So... My video game comparison for that is the entire cast from Bloody Roar because they can become animals, but also Adam, Ant-Man, Miss mm -hmm. Marvel, like those kind of characters who live. I think one of my abilities at one point I had it named the Embiggen Punch, and I was like, "This is copyright. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna change that name a little bit." But I also, for trying to differentiate the game, I have, I had an idea that I was like. A lot of your inspiration for what I was seeing in the engine doc was like destiny games. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, okay, talk a lot about loadouts in these games. Mm -hmm. A lot about like shifting stuff to fit the parameters of the situation where you'll have some things where it's like, we need to focus this down quick or no, everyone follow this mechanic. Mm -hmm. Nobody move at this point. Okay. Now everyone haul ass here. <laughs> Now we have the burst period, and now we focus. And I had a lot of those in FF14 as well, where mechanics will change between different like raid fights and stuff. And I was like, how do you get that feel where it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a change that will make it, that can happen consistently enough mm. that folks can, it can still be fun even when you do it a bunch of different times. So I came up with the idea of rotating passives that are how they manifest themselves, uh, uh, how they like focus their manifestation in the dream world. So for example, the loop you have for gameplay is you have like a briefing session and then you go out for a mission during the fights, you're getting loot and a bunch of different things. And then like you solve the mission, come back. During the briefing period, that's a moment of rest for them for all seven classes to choose one of three forms mm. to have a passive going. So for example, the Twilight Dancer, they have uh, a they can choose between dancing light, dancing shadow, and dancing twilight. If they choose dancing light, they reflect harm back when they receive damage. Mm. They choose dancing shadow, 
they can coat an enemy in darkness that'll double the next harm they receive. And if they choose Dancing Twilight, they can summon a Twilight construct that will add plus one harm to all of their attacks. So it's just, they can't have all three active at once. It's just a passive thing, but they can choose like a loadout every time they go out on a mission. I'm like, okay, this has been really bad for damage and I'm getting hurt a lot. I need a defensive thing or nah, we're going to go all attack on this. I'm going to do a burst mode on this. And all of them have that. So I'm still building out a lot of this, but that's the thing I'm, I'm most excited about that. And I've been itch funding the Flame in the Abyss game. And it's at 60% of funding of my first goal, which is great. Heck yeah. I'm so excited for that. Well, we're definitely going to throw all that stuff in in the description so that folks can find that. I, I mean, how dare you make such a cool sounding <laughs> Those playbooks sound so good. They sound so fun. I, I, I love the, idea of the, the rotating passives too, right? Like to give you that little bit of like, okay, yeah, we are getting our asses kicked, or I got my ass kicked that last time, and I don't want to have that happen again. I'm, here's my small adjustment that I'm going to make. Uh, oh, it's brilliant. That's so good. I like because so much of like what I've seen for I think both we can both agree that's so fun about video games is that some of it's the fantasy appeal, some of it's the like getting out of our everyday jobs. But for what I always found for like FPS kind of games and such, some of the joys of those games are just like uh, like me, for example, I, I haven't played that much Destiny, but I had a loadout at one point where I was like, I have a sniper rifle, I have my bow, and I have a shotgun. Uh, I'm covered on all ranges, and then add someone else who was like, "Oh, I don't have any. I don't have anything for long range." Oh, okay. What do you use? It's like eh, I have fucking magnum that I I pop someone in the head like a medium up close. It's like, don't you need really good aim? Yeah. Do you have good aim? No, but I'm gonna have good aim by the end of this. <laughs> gonna learn. <laughs> I'm gonna. You're gonna learn today. <laughs> and it's I I love those kinds of things where like folks will have the entirely different attitudes for how they approach this and. And that's that kind of joy, mm. that kind of feeling to me is oftentimes one of the most critical things because I, I have a very tentative position endorsing uh, this thing that I believe about, like even just GMing, which is people don't always necessarily want complete freedom, but they always want to feel like they have complete freedom and agency. That's more important than if they actually do. So, like, for example, when I GM games, I've had situations where I give them the like open world game effect where I'm like, well, right now you have like three options to investigate this town. The the church has said the the temple has said that there's a an issue going on right now. Some folks you could go talk to the townspeople, that's one option. Mm. Uh there was something mentioned about uh a monument out right outside of town. You could go look there. Uh you could go talk to the person who was directly involved in the incident. Spoiler, all of them lead to the same endpoint. Right. <laughs> but people feel like it changes. It's significant to them. People want to have that sense of choice. Right. They want that agency. And whatever you can do to facilitate that often leads, I found, to a much better experience for people. Because it's not railroading that's bad. It's when you feel like you don't have a say in what's happening. Right. Like giving people a clear objective is not a bad thing. It's just making them feel like 
I, am I going here because I wanted to? Right. I, I, I guess. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm a hundred percent on. I, I'm in the same realm. Think I think the same way in terms of how I, I GM things. So, uh, I, oh my god, this game. I, I'm, I'm still thinking about this. Um, the ability of the light, and you move. You're, you're literally teleporting to where the light reflects. Like you, you planted that, and that, that's just like gonna live in my head for the rest of the day. Like that. Hey, give me a couple other abilities. We want to live with those. I would love to live with a couple more abilities in my head. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh. Why don't I go? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with this. Psychopomp ability, otherworldly communion, unleash a psionic wave pulled from the dreams and nightmares of allies, dealing X damage to close enemies where X is the number of near and close lucids. So you basically, it's stronger depending on how close your allies are, and you're basically like, you're dealing with some shit today. Let me Let, grab that for a second. <laughs> Giant wave hitting everything, and oh God, where's that other one that was my favorite? Oh, this. This is not a damaging ability. This is just plane shifter. Deja vu. Designate a lucid. Replicate the effects of their next action. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so good. You're just, like, you're just like, oh, uh, our evoker is about to use a giant storm on somebody. Do it again. Mm -hmm. Just time just seems to have like a delayed skip effect where it just happens one more time. Oh. Yep, there we go. Oh my goodness, that's, that's so good. These are very very good. I mean, you're you're working on this right now. I know you're like still in early phases and stuff. Do you have a sense of when it's gonna when you're gonna try and put this out into the world and something? Just because I I need to have it immediately is what I'm saying. So like this is very so give me so give me, give me, when, give me. When I have this. <laughs> I will let you know as soon as I have more ground going on it because I'm gonna be involved in some other streams coming up soon. But this this game is very much a love letter to like dreamscape fantasy and also a lot of appreciation for what uh cypher system and numenera weirdness mm. does right which is just as needlessly tedious as it is to read those books because those i love <laughs> i like money cook games but dear god are they gargantuan manuals to look at sometimes <laughs> And they cover a lot of genres, yeah. and they cover a lot of things really well with a, with an engine that knows it knows what it's trying to do. Which is, hi GMs, have you? Hi there, it's me. Your goodwill and desire to protect you from yourself. Do you want to not plan five hours of research just to make monsters? Because uh, I will readily confess, during one one arc of my 5e campaign i spent 20 hours in that week making homebrew monsters and regions that was literally me just going through 3.5 and 4e creatures i'm like there's no interesting fey in 5e i have to go comb through other editions mm -hmm. went through like uh forgotten realms wikis and i was just like this is cool this is cool this one could be interesting oh this one has, literally has floating swords as an aura around it i'm gonna steal that and pull this over here it's, 
I should not do that to myself more. I should not. That is is a lot of hours. I hope that you get to uh, use the prep at least. Because that's that's the brutal thing is if you put all that hour in and then they're like, "Eh, actually, we're just not going to engage with this today. (laughs) I had that happen once Uh (laughs) where I was like, oh, yeah, they my my party never actually follows the plot. So I'll just plan for a relatively chill session. They're like, hey, why don't we go check out that statue you've been hinting at for like two sessions? I'm like, oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm really glad that I statted these creatures three weeks ago because uh-huh. that turned into a three and a half hour session where they're like they went over here. Oh, crap. There's the boss monster. They tried to fight it kick their ass, or at least they thought it was going to kick their ass, plane shift over to another region, uh, or no, teleport over to another region. We're fine, right? No, region they teleported was the next arc of their journey, where the whole village (laughs) they went to before was raised by a dragon, and they're like, this isn't safe, and the other region is going to be like destroyed if we don't go back. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Those three and a half hours of me just panicking, being like, oh god, oh god. Why did you go here? I wanted this to be a reveal later, damn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't do this to me now. Don't make me panic you. Right. Oh. I I do remember just putting in the all those hours of and like I say like it's a bummer if they don't engage with it, but also like I still had fun doing my hours and hours I, of prep. I it's did just like, too. It's just like, yeah, okay, fine. I I made all of this and they engaged with this much of it, but I had my fun. It's my it's my lonely my lonely fun sort of thing. It's it, it, it is what it is. It it is the definition of like you get any joy out of this? I mean at some point, yes. Yeah. Maybe not now, this exact moment, but at some point I will. They're like, what is a joy? I mean uh, and my answer is like, you know the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth? Yeah. Okay, so what if he had an ability where if you fail a save, he he incapacitates you, and your your perception of that incapacitation is you are at a royal feast mm. where he looks absolutely handsome and is inviting you to sit next to him while he slowly and actually lumbers towards you and is about to eat you. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I'm gonna go do that. Pretty cool. Pretty cool, I'd say. Pretty 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 cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is this has been a blast. I I've, I'm so glad that we got to sit down and talk about kind of your origin points with, with the writing and the projects you're working on now. It's all incredibly inspiring, and I truly need Dreamweavers in my life. I need it in my veins. Uh, I don't know which class I'm, I'm going to because uh, I'm I'm going to make somebody run this for me, and I I don't know. I feel like. Psychopomp jumped out. I mean, they all jumped out to me, but I feel like the Psychopomp is maybe going to be the first thing. We'll see. We'll see how Spencer feels on the day. But Yeah, on the day, if, if Spencer is going to be a psychology trope of just picking right. the psychology-related thing uh, for that day. <laughs> I mean, here, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with one last thing, with the passives, partially because I was proud of how I named these. Beyond the surface, you gain the power to soothe the emotions of others, passively increasing uh, their memory resource, so their their like uh, power resource mm-hmm. by one at the start of each combat round. Beyond the veil, gain the power to speak with the dead. The dead terrify enemies during the first round of combat and prevent all actions. Mm-hmm. 
beyond the weave, commune with otherworldly beings in the dreamscape, and grant advantage to all party rolls made during the first round of combat. Oh, those are all very good. Those are all very good passives. And again, I can, I can imagine the scenario where I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, like maybe one of them jumps out to me as the one I really like, but I can always like, I'll need to change it sometimes. I'll get, we'll be, we'll be in a situation where it's like, okay, actually, we really just need these enemies to like be shut down right away, and we just do what we can while they're shut down. So I'm gonna take, you know, I'm gonna take the one that just mess with the dead, and it scares the shit out of them, right? Uh, it's all so good. Um, wowzers, 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 wowzers. I'm very excited. I will say they all, they also are the only one of the, I think, two playbooks that their starting set of abilities has a heal in it okay so bear in mind this is a support class okay okay i did which is class. i people talk too much shit about support they're like what do you do and i'm like we carry the team what I, do you think we do i love playing support i'm i used to be the like i want to i want to do all the damage and everything and then i started playing supporting things and i was like Actually, this is really, really fun. I, I like, I really, really enjoy playing support characters. So what's the, the, the meme that's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I am God now. I control whether you live or die now. That's too many, too many hours of playing TF2 Medic is mm. only giving me a mild God complex. Right, exactly. And justifiably so, I say. I say, as a fellow Justifiably so. It's like... It's like demo man runs in, blows everything up. It's like, haha, I didn't die. It's like, I know, I know. It's like, wait, why am I? In, why are there still four enemies? I'm alone, and you're over there because I don't die either. I get out when I don't want to die. <laughs> I value your life. I value my life more. Pretty good too. You die. It's just you. I die. It's four people. Weighing the odds, I should live. You, you're, you're, it's you're expendable. It's just math. It's just math. It's, it's just math. <laughs> um, this has been fantastic. I have had a a really wonderful time chatting with you. Um, for folks uh, at home, like I said, all the links for all this stuff will go into descriptions and things like that. But where, where, where can people find all of your wonderful stuff, including the game that you're itch funding and all the other stuff that you're working on? Okay, so uh, here's all the different things. So if you go to Voice of the Phoenix on itch.io, that is my main page to find everything that I have separated out my fantasy and space uh, Slayers classes, which is my way of putting the one Destiny class and the 19 FF14 <laughs> classes. My poetry chat books, which the first one was a whole poetry book essentially done in honor of the Slayers Almanac project. And the category for narrative gestures is where Flame in the Abyss, the game I am currently uh, itch funding right now, is uh, happening. And that's that's where a lot of my future game design work is going to be. If you want to see my poetry, some of my, uh, my original music, and uh, some creature designs, I need to catch up on posting more of those. Uh, you can find me over on Patreon at Philosophem. And if you want to find me uh, just in general on Twitter, I'm at phoenix24fem. That's where most of my stuff is. And if you just look for Angela Lemos Mogrovejo, uh, you can find my postings over on uh, Rooted in Rights as a disabled uh, in their disability blog writer series. 
and Art for Ourselves, you can find my other pieces on that side as well. I'm kind of in a lot of different spots and uh, I do a lot of different things, but those are a lot of the main areas you can find me. My pinned uh, tweet on my profile also has a connection to, and my profile on Twitter also has a connection to my link tree where you can find a lot, uh, all of it collected together, but especially uh, the different writing, the different one shots I've done. I did a charity one shot of uh, Slayers for JDRF International, where I got to have the joy of having my players realize that the one shot was just the forest temple from Legend of Zelda redone, and the final boss was Link. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh. I was I was just like, yeah, he this this corrupted spirit comes out where with pointed ears, a green hat wielding a sword and a shield, and the the tattered fabric of the outfit also must have at one point been a bright like forest green. Oh, and like two of them looked at me I'm like, are we fighting Link? And I was like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the Tempest Her it's the Tempest Vanguard, which was just my Super fancy way of saying it's the hero of time. Right. Oh my god. That is amazing. I have to go watch that. I have to go watch that. It, it, it's I I've chosen I have chosen well in, in the games that I pull from because I know exactly what my audience is, and my audience is fellow video game nerds and folks who are like, I want video game stuff, but not video games. I'm like I got you. I know what you're. I know what you're asking for. I know yeah. what you want. I know what you want. <laughs> That's wonderful, um, folks. You can find all of the links to that stuff in the the descriptions to all of this. Um, uh, thank you again for for joining us, uh, for for watching and listening along. Thank you for being here and chatting with me over tea and coffee. This has been this has been great. I had a blast. I'm inspired now. I'm gonna yes. I'm going to just I'm, I'm, sit here and just stare and waiting for Dreamweavers to show up, I think. That's just going to be what I do now. While you wait, just go look at Stewpot and yeah. uh, This Party Sucks. Those are the two games I would recommend. They're they're really great just in general. My partner wrote one of them, and This Party Sucks is another, I believe, trans writer who's really fantastic. Takuma is an absolute delightful being and is also, I think, a bit of a troll on Twitter as well of just being like, I need I need you all to like tone it down a notch with how how much importance you give to me. But yeah, th those two are really great. And oh, before I forget, the other person I would recommend as well, uh, games by Quintastic over on itch.io are also fan are also really good. They're I think uh, often I think they they refer to their games as like fever dreams. Okay, and. There's a lot of games that they've written that are like just poetry session, poetry vibes, and then there's other games that are just really beautiful mechanically and in layout. Go check those out. They're really worth the time. Love it. Love the shout-outs at the end. Uh, folks, this has been another Coffee Break. We will see you next week. Uh, I'm sitting down with a fellow Chicago designer, Logan Dean. So we're mostly going to probably talk about food in Chicago. So, you know, if you want to talk about Chicago food... Come hang out next week with us. Uh, tell me the secrets. Tell, tell, tell me in Twitter messages what the secrets of Chicago food are. Tell me the things. All, all the I want to know for when post all of this mess is post all of this. I'm like, just want to travel. I just want food.
we got food. We got food. And uh, I think Logan and I will have a good talk about that. Uh, have yourselves a wonderful rest of the morning, afternoon, evening, wherever it is you are, and we will talk to you later. Bye, everybody.